This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Globally, more than 800 women and nearly 7,000 newborns die each day from pregnancy-related complications the vast majority of which are preventable. Yet over the past 40 years, only two new medicines have been approved for use in pregnancy. What this means in reality is that common medical conditions arising in pregnancy often have no treatments, and GPs can have almost no information on whether existing drugs the women are taking are safe to continue with. So why aren't drugs being developed and approved when women and babies are dying needlessly? And how can we make sure pregnant women benefit from modern medicine? I'm Ian Sample, The Guardian's science editor, and this is Science Weekly. Peter Brocklehurst, you're a professor of women's health at the University of Birmingham, and you recently co-authored a report about the lack of suitable medicines in pregnancy and the fact that pregnant people are routinely excluded from medical trials. First of all, why is that? Why aren't people who are pregnant getting medicines like everyone else? Well, I think this dates back to the thalidomide disaster of the late 1950s and very early 1960s. Thalidomide was a drug which was given to women who had nausea and vomiting in early pregnancy. Some of the fetuses that were exposed, they developed a condition called phocomelia, which is very short limbs and deformities of the hands and feet. Thalidomide was never tested in clinical trials. It was simply used in pregnant women. And understandably, because of the terrible consequences, people have been very afraid to either test medicines in pregnancy or in particular, develop new medicines for use in pregnancy. The thalidomide tragedy was about 60, 70 years ago now, but since and, and even now, pregnant women are routinely excluded from clinical trials. And the problems around this all came to light, though, during the COVID pandemic, didn't they? Yes. All of the first vaccine trials routinely excluded pregnant women. 
I don't know whether that was just a knee-jerk response, which is the usual way of it, or it was considered prudent to exclude pregnant women from the vaccine trials. But the consequences of that is that nobody knew whether we should be giving the vaccine or offering the vaccine to pregnant women. And in fact, in some instances, women were being advised not to have the vaccine because we didn't know whether it was safe and effective. And as a consequence, pregnant women and their babies have died in substantial numbers. I mean, at one point in the UK, 20% of people in intensive care with COVID were pregnant women uh, because they hadn't been vaccinated. And now we know in retrospect, now that thousands and hundreds of thousands of women have been vaccinated, not only is the vaccine extremely effective at preventing COVID and severe COVID in pregnant women, we also saw a 15% reduction in the risk of stillbirth in those pregnancies. It must have been difficult for clinicians advising pregnant women during the pandemic, but they're regularly faced with this complete lack of information about the medicines they're prescribing. I'm wondering how doctors manage and treat their patients when they're faced with this huge information gap. So clinicians you know, have to sit down with the patients that they care for and say, we've got these medicines. We don't really know if they're completely safe and effective in pregnancy but we need to treat your underlying health condition because if we don't, the pregnancy is likely to have adverse consequences. And sometimes I think clinicians feel that they have to impress how important it is that some medicine is taken in order to prevent a disease that has been well managed from becoming out of control. And it's a really difficult choice. It's a really difficult, difficult choice. One of the examples that really shocked me was epilepsy. There are several medications that are known to increase the risk of major congenital malformations. But of course, coming off those drugs leaves the women at increased risk of seizures. And in fact, pregnant women do die from epilepsy every year. So these people are faced with an impossible choice. But also wonder about the longer term harms. Is there a lack of knowledge around that as well? Yes. We are very good at looking at medicines exposure in pregnancy in terms of congenital anomalies. So when babies are born with physical anomalies or things like heart defects, but what we're not very good at, because it's extremely difficult, is looking at what happens to those children in the longer term. So do they hit their developmental milestones? Do they do as well at school as their peers? So another famous example from the 1960s was a drug called diethylstilbestrol, which was a synthetic estrogen, which was given to women who were experiencing the early signs of miscarriage to see whether it would stop them from miscarrying. It didn't. It didn't make any difference. But there was no obvious problem in the children. It was only when the female fetuses got to their late teens and early 20s that some of them started to develop a rare form of vaginal cancer, and vaginal cancer is very rare, that people realised there was a link to what they were exposed to in utero. And we don't routinely follow up the offspring of women exposed to medicines in pregnancy. And I'm not trying to cause concern here, because I think a lot of the time these drugs will have no problems. But we should know that. And what about medicines and treatments that come along for pregnancy-related conditions. I mean, surely pregnant women are included on those trials? Yes, 
Here the problem is not that women won't take part in clinical trials and we don't do clinical trials. We do the things like preeclampsia and, and preterm birth, but we're not developing any new medicines. So there's been lots and lots of trials of low-dose aspirin for preeclampsia. So we're pretty confident about when you should start it, what the dose is. And it does have a small effect, but there's been nothing new developed for the treatment or prevention of preeclampsia for 40-odd years. And the same for preterm birth. So the impact of those conditions has barely changed, apart from radical improvements in neonatal intensive care for preterm babies. But as obstetricians, we've made very little difference to the number of babies being born preterm or the number of women developing severe preeclampsia. And why is that, Peter? Why are there so few drugs being developed for pregnancy? Again, it goes back to the thalidomide stories and the liability, not just financial, but in terms of reputation for any company or university or any organisation which develops new medicines that could potentially be harmful is very substantial. But I think we're seeing a sea change. We're seeing people understanding that the lack of drug development is as bad if not worse, than the potential risks of developing new medicines. We can now find out whether a medicine crosses the placenta. We can find whether this medicine, if it's used after birth, gets into breast milk. We're getting much more sophisticated than we were 40 years ago. So I think we can do that and be more confident about it. There is then this grim irony that sort of in order to protect women, they've been excluded from these clinical trials. And that very act has put them more at risk because of not having availability to new medicines and not knowing whether these existing medicines are safe for them to use. But do we know if pregnant women actually want to take part in clinical trials? Or is there a lot of caution on that side that is actually an issue as well? So I think it depends on the nature of the clinical trial. I've certainly run clinical trials of medicines in pregnancy and been involved in many more. And women are are very willing to take part in these clinical trials. We took a lot of evidence when we developed this report from pregnancy and baby charities. And of course, they, they didn't necessarily understand that there was a problem because you don't necessarily notice that you don't have something, which is new medicines being developed. But when that was pointed out, of course, there was outrage amongst them. And they felt very strongly that pregnant women should be included in trials. They should be offered inclusion in trials for them and for future generations of women. So I think the idea that pregnant women weren't participating in clinical trials is a bit of a myth. So Peter, how do you think we improve this situation? How do we get pregnant women onto clinical trials, get these drugs coming through and improve the situation as as we see it today? The pharmaceutical industry, government, researchers, women, we need to work together to decide how and what we want to do about this situation. There needs to be political will, there needs to be substantial investment. I mean, I would like to see something as happened with HIV in the early days, huge investment And the medicines that we've developed for HIV now mean that HIV and AIDS is a manageable long-term condition, not unlike diabetes. It's complex, but it's not undoable. Interestingly, we called a lot of witnesses to come and talk to the, the people who were developing the report, and everybody felt that we needed to do something. Everybody felt that we could all pull together. 
This is a grim situation that you've shone a light on. Are you optimistic about our ability to address it? Oh, I absolutely think we can do it. Will we do it? I think that if government, our government and governments around the world understand the importance of the healthy pregnancy and the fact that that has generational effects on their population and that they consider pregnant women important and women in general important, then they should be acting. If they don't, what does that say about the status of women and pregnancy in our societies? I think this area has been neglected for many, many decades, and there needs to be a political engagement to make this happen. Imagine what impact we could have around the world in terms of preventing babies dying or being disabled if we could even half the risk of preterm birth or preeclampsia. That would be a fantastic legacy to leave the world. Peter, huge thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks again to Professor Peter Brocklehurst. You can find links to my article on the subject, as well as the report Peter mentioned, Healthy Mother, Healthy Baby, Healthy Future, on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finley. The sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. And the executive producer was Isabel Rugol. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.